Today's Tin House News is about their most recent release, a slim volume by the late, great Catherine Dunn, most famous for her novel Geek Love, called On Cussing. Readers of Catherine Dunn won't be surprised that f*** the f***ity f***ing f***er was her father's favorite sentence, or that as a young girl she heard it as a kind of profane poem or secret song. And in On Cussing, Dunn not only sketches a brief history of swear words and creates a field guide to their types and usages, but she also explores their physiology, the physical impact on the reader or listener, and makes an argument for how and when to cuss in one's writing and in one's life with maximum effect. On Cussing is available now at tinhouse.com with an introduction by filmmaker Gus Van Sant and proceeds will benefit the Catherine Dunn Scholarship at Pacific University's MFA program. Next up is Lacey M. Johnson's return to the show to discuss her much-anticipated essay collection, The Reckonings. I'll be adding her reading of a short essay called Trigger to the bonus audio archive, which you can find along with ways to get copies of Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing, Magical Negro by Morgan Parker, bundles of back issues of Tin House Magazine, and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, professor, curator, activist, and author Lacey M. Johnson, was first on the show for her 2014 book, The Other Side from Tin House Books, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, an Edgar Award, and the CLMP Firecracker Award in Nonfiction. The Other Side was also picked by Library Journal and Kirkus as a best book of the year and deemed by the latter as a modern classic. Lacey M. Johnson is also the author of Trespasses, a memoir, which was anthologized in both The Racial Imaginary, edited by Claudia Rankin, and Literature, the Human Experience. Johnson has a PhD from the University of Houston Creative Writing Program, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Tin House, and Guernica, among others. She teaches creative nonfiction at Rice University with specializations in 20th and 21st century U.S. literature, gender and sexuality, and eco-criticism and environmental humanities. She's also the founding director of the Houston Flood Museum, 
whose mission is to exhibit the connections between human activities and catastrophic flooding and to act as a catalyst for reimagining ways to evolve in the context of persistent natural disasters. Lacey M. Johnson returns to the program today to talk about her latest book, her collection of essays from Scribner entitled The Reckonings. The Reckonings was picked as a best book of 2018 by the Boston Globe, Book Riot, and Electric Literature, and was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. NPR says of The Reckonings, Equal parts memoir, criticism, and ethics, The Reckonings has bits of Eula Biss, Leslie Jameson, and Simone Weil, but its patron saint is Grace Paley. The 12 essays in The Reckonings are 12 beginnings. Each one deserves great consideration while you read it and long after. Each one leaves the work up to you. Kiesi Lehman adds, Through prose that is at once passionate and percussive, Lacey Johnson's The Reckonings demands that we place justice and discovery at the center of our conversations, memories, imaginations, and art. I don't know that I've ever been happier to be alive after reading any book. In this weird way that probably says way too much about the smallness of my life, I felt like everything would be okay, like we will make and sustain justice, because a book I needed but never imagined reading was in the world. The Reckonings is as important as it is masterful on the sentence and conceptual level. The Reckonings is proof that caring about this place and getting lost in the minutiae of what makes us unjust might actually be a prereq for creating incredible, life-altering, just art. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Lacey M. Johnson. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you so much for having me. So your new book, The Essay Collection, The Reckonings, comes from questions that arose after your your book before it, the memoir, The Other Side, was out in the world and being responded to. Um, so orient us to the, the questions that people were asking you or the desires that they were expressing about your own life after your memoir came out that sort of began this, this questioning. Because I even remember when you were here last, you were talking about working on these questions of justice. Yeah. So, you know, when I was, um, when I would read and talk about the other side, audiences, um, usually who had not read the book yet, who had just heard me talking about it, one of the questions they um, asked when they found out that he had um, gotten away, that he was a fugitive living in Venezuela, he would say, or they would say, you know, what do you want to have happen to him? And they would follow it with, you probably want him dead, right? And I found that question so troubling and interesting um, because I don't want him dead at all. Um, I don't necessarily want him to be my neighbor, but I don't. I, I didn't want him dead. I didn't want him to suffer. And that question to me just revealed so much about how we in this culture. Um, kind of think of justice, which is, you know, you do something bad, something bad happens to you, and therefore justice. Um, but to me, that doesn't, um, that doesn't seem like justice. You know, if we, if we think of it as an eye for an eye, and there has to be symmetry, making him suffer doesn't do anything to help me. It won't make me feel any better. It won't erase the last 19 years of trauma and nightmares and, you know, the way that that altered, 
you know, how I move through the world and how I relate to other people. So is, so can we call that justice or can we think about that justice? And if that is not justice, then what is? And so that, you know, I was thinking about that, um, while I was, you know, I, I began thinking about that while I was, um, you know, on tour with the other side. And I stopped at one university, um, Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. And um, a person in the audience there, this this wonderful writer named Leslie Jill Patterson, um, she, had brought, she had brought me to campus and heard me um, give this answer to the question, which was, I, you know, I don't want him to suffer. I don't want him to die. What I want is for him to admit what he did to my face in public and then to spend the rest of his life in service of other people's joy. And when she heard me give that answer, it reminded her of this other book that she had read by an author they had brought named David Dow, who has a book called Autobiography of an Execution. And it's a wonderful book. And he's um, a a lawyer, works on the death penalty in Texas. Um, And she put a copy of this book in my hands and said, you should read this. And I did. And then it it got me thinking about how, you know, these these questions that that I was asking are, of course, questions that we ask around the death penalty and larger questions of justice. And that book led me to Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, um, which was so powerful and rearranged my brain in all the best ways. Um, and then I wrote an essay about the death penalty called On Mercy, which didn't scratch the itch. And I realized that there was a something bigger and larger underneath it, which was these more broader and cultural questions about justice. And then I was sort of on my way to writing a book. Hmm. And you, you mentioned in this, in this answer this desire for symmetry and an eye for yeah. an eye. And you do go back to the Code of Hammurabi. Yes. Could, could you tell us a little bit about how maybe we look at that code, mm-hmm. which— um, we think of as this desire for symmetry differently than than how it was actually uh, enacted in in real time? Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, we think of it as an Old Testament proclamation, right? An eye for an eye, because it it is there. Um, But it's also, it dates, you know, it's older than Old Testament. It dates back to the Code of Hammurabi, which is, you know, 5,000 year old. It's, you know, the first set of written laws. And um, we refer to that as if it is a mandate, as if we say you must, you know, if if someone uh, plucks out your eye, you must pluck out their eye, that that is what justice is. But in fact, what was meant by the law was that it should be a kind of upper limit on retribution, like no more (laughs) than plucking out your eye. Um, Because what was happening was, you know, someone would steal a neighbor's cow, for instance, and that neighbor would respond by murdering their entire family. And so the Code of Habarabi was meant to just sort of put an upper limit on vengeance and say, no, no more than that. But that's not to say that it was a mandate. Um, And that to me just says so much about, you know, um, retributive hatred that when someone harms Arms us. Um, often our response is, is hatred and hatred. It's very easy for it to sort of metastasize out of control. What are your, your feelings about, um, and you touch on this in the book, but what are your feelings about consuming or participating in art that uh, sort of scratches the itch of wanting the bad person to be punished? Because that's so widespread and, and it's very um, satisfying often when you see the person who's set up as the villain in a movie or a book to get the come up, come up and that, that they supposedly deserve. Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, there's a kind of narrative pleasure 
in in that in that story and and you're right I do write about this in the book about you know like in Game of Thrones when um Ramsey or is it Joffrey well, Joffrey, oh, and I was thinking of okay. Ramsey Bolton, right? Is right, Ramsey's terrible. Right, yeah. he's terrible. And when, you know, um, Sansa Stark, like, releases his dogs on him and, and you know, after all the terrible things that he's done to her, you know, and she's turning around and she's walking out of the room as his dogs are eating him alive and he's screaming and there's, like, a little smirk on her face. Yeah. Like... I loved that. I love it, too, you know, because <laughs> uh, because it, 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 as you... It, it, it gives us narrative pleasure um, to see someone get what they deserve because we never see that in real life, right? Um, the bad person almost never gets their due, um, especially now, you know, sort of in the current <clears throat> political climate. But, um, but I think that that is not what real lived justice is like. I, even though I find pleasure in watching this on Game of Thrones... If I were to see someone in real life be eaten alive by dogs, I would not find any pleasure in it whatsoever. You know, it would be horrifying. And I and I do find that all the sort of images of violence that we see and are asked to look at does not feel satisfying in any kind of way. And that what those movies and stories and the sort of spectacle um, of it, you know, I think it makes us a little numb to real suffering and the the experience of our of our common you know our our fellow humans um and i think um also it, it it teaches us a kind that that violence is strength that cruelty is power you know i'm also a fan of like Marvel movies, but I went to see one of them. I don't remember which one it was, maybe one of the Thor movies. And it was so violent. It was just so violent. And I was sitting there in the theater, all of a sudden thinking like it, no wonder people like feel so compelled toward violence you know, it's shown to us, it's valorized, it's glorified that any story that we have of of someone who is harmed in some kind of way, if at the end they get to kill the person who harmed them, we're, we're asked to celebrate. And if, you know, from a very young age, boys and men and even girls are taught that this is how you become a hero, I think it, it's not then surprising that we live in a culture that is so so violent. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about this book is your attentiveness to language and, and vocabulary of, of what, it, what shifts when the question is about reckoning rather than retribution, and also the way you unpack and look at the liabilities of words like recovery mm-hmm. and restorative justice, which mm-hmm. both imply a wholeness that can be recovered uh, and that nothing irrevocable has happened. And, and one of these language meditations you walk us through is how you notice an overlap in language between the way we talk about the suffering of terminally ill children and the way we talk about state-sanctioned execution. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the word mercy in, in light of these two things and, and why and how you ended up twinning these, these two different or seemingly different um, scenarios uh, you, using a meditation on this word. 
Sure. So, you know, after reading Autobiography of an Execution and Just Mercy, you know, those things had me thinking about um, about execution and state-sanctioned, you know, murder. And um, in particular because there's so much language around, um, you know, capital punishment that is about mercy, that's about relieving suffering, that's about sort of um, dignity and end of life and and this kind of care for the, you know, the humanness of a person that you're about to murder. And at that same time, I had just finished a year of teaching in uh, teaching writing in a pediatric cancer ward in Houston. And many of my um, students there, many of the writers, they're, you know, quite, quite ill. Several of them died during the time that I was teaching. And I just noticed a kind of um, interesting overlap in the language that was used to talk about these children who are, let's be clear, like perfectly innocent. You know, they've, you know, I write in particular about this one girl who was maybe nine, I think, when she died. Um, But there was, you know, they were also talking about dignity and mercy and end-of-life care and um, sort of thinking about how to um, alleviate suffering in in similar ways that they were talking about how to alleviate suffering um, in capital punishment, but they meant really, really different things. Like that language was being used in such different ways. And that word mercy in particular, which was being deployed in both of those, um, you know, discourses meant such radically different things. Um, and so I just uh, wanted to kind of excavate that a little bit and, um, you know, so the, the essay on mercy tries to pull those two things together to figure out what we mean by this word mercy. And I think the thing that I discovered in the end is that, um, you know, I write that there are two kinds of mercy. There's big mercy, um, which is the kind of mercy that we imagine God offering, you know, when he floods the earth and spares, you know, a, a single family and his children, um, and, and that everything else needs to be destroyed, that, that in some ways many people need to suffer in order to redeem a very few. Um, and then there's another kind of mercy, which is little, what I call little mercy, which is more about honoring the dignity of of everyone, that um, that everyone deserves to sort of have their humanity affirmed no matter what they've done. There's no one at all um, who deserves to offer or receive this big mercy that requires the suffering of many. Um, and there's no one who doesn't deserve the little mercy that is the affirmation of their humanity. As you sort of alluded to at the beginning, You've mentioned that a lot of readers have responded with a difficulty of letting go of this idea of punishment. Yeah. And um, they seem to equate your uh, statement that um, either someone's going to get punished or they're not going to have any sort of reckoning. Mm -hmm. So they're going to go free. And of course, it's unsatisfying for the sense of that there's nothing that's going to happen to the person who did some injustice in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was, I was wondering if we could 
talk a little bit about what might be between those two extremes? You mentioned, for instance, uh, about your your fugitive ex-boyfriend who who kidnapped and, and raped you and then fled to Venezuela, um, that you wouldn't want him to suffer, but you'd want him to have a reckoning mm-hmm. that sounds more like a, a spiritual reckoning that, or if not a spiritual reckoning, a, a emotional reckoning that would prompt him to uh, dedicate himself to repair, to repair around what in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And it just made me think of, I couldn't find the article, but there was this interesting article in the New York times that was asking this question of what do we do with um, people in the me too movement who aren't the people who should be in jail? Like, so, so if we put aside Harvey Weinstein and people who are like full on doing criminal behavior and even put aside the celebrities like Louis C.K. or or Sherman Alexie who've leveraged their power um, and harmed other people's careers as well as been sexual harassers. Um, and we just look at um, the common day um, sexual harassment or predation or violations of norms within college campuses and how this article is talking about like uh, – how institutions pass the trash is what she called it. Mm-hmm. So instead of there being any reckoning or any um, consequence, really, it's they're protecting the they're protecting their student body, but they're also sort of protecting their liability. They don't want to go to court. They don't want to spend the money, and the person's record doesn't uh, get affected. They get to go on to another school. Mm-hmm. So um, it perpetuates something. While also doing a, it's doing a small good, but perpetuating the larger bad, perhaps. But it was interesting about that article. She's like, no one has asked the question what it would look like for those bad actors who aren't criminals. What would it look like for them to come back in a meaningful way? Like, Mm -hmm. what would that look like? She didn't have any answers, but I love that she asked it. And I don't have an answer. And I'm not expecting you necessarily to either, but I was that that weird space, I guess, of, um, well, what would it take for your fugitive ex-boyfriend to um, come to the place of dedicating his life to, um, yeah, to that, something yeah. in response that that owned his own responsibility? Right. So um, I have a lot kind of jumbled thoughts about this. I don't know that, you know, I I intentionally did not in this book say, you know, to write a how-to, like it looks like X, Y, and Z. Um, You know, my vision of justice looks like this. Um, But I think on the one hand, one argument that I do want to make is that perhaps we are focusing too much on what happens to the men. Um, that in many ways, what happens to the men is not necessarily um, how we should think about justice, because even in everything that you said, we didn't talk at all about the women that they've harmed or what we need to do to amplify um, their joy in this world or to sort of return them to a place where the condition of joy is a possibility again. And I'm much more interested in thinking about that and and focusing my ideas and my efforts on how we make the condition of joy a possibility again for the women and men and children who have survived these men and less on thinking about 
these men who, who do this harm. Um, so that's one answer. Um, the other answer, I think, um, I felt really moved and compelled by, um, the trial, the Larry Nassar trial and how, and that's a criminal trial. So it's a, a, you know, again, different from the question that you're asking. Um, but I had never seen anything quite like that before during the victim impact statements um, section of that trial where a few of the women that he had molested and abused and assaulted were given the opportunity to speak to him to his face and tell him that what he had done was wrong, the way it had harmed them and affected them in their lives, the way it had altered the, their past, the way that they had imagined their trajectories and their careers and what success looked like and how he had altered that and he had no right to do that and that, you know, that they were furious and full of rage and they got to say that to him. And he didn't get to object. He didn't get to insert his own narrative over that he had to listen and meanwhile the judge affirmed each woman who came to speak and said your story is valuable you are so brave you are an amazing woman you're so strong you are going to go out of here and your life will be wonderful you know, and that, you know, I'm tearing up just sort of thinking about, you know, having the opportunity to, to do that where an institution like a court is accepting a woman's story of her own experience as truth. I mean, it seems so obvious, but it's really, really not. Um, and that then, um, you know, the, the first few women uh, spoke and, and the judge, and I, her name is escaping me right now, I apologize. Um, but she, you know, she said publicly, like, I'm going to leave this open until, until the beginning of the week, because I imagine that there are some women out there who would like to come speak and haven't come spoken, and they're a little bit afraid to, but I want to tell you, like, this is your time, I'm going to leave it open for you. And then, you know, on Monday, more women came and more women came, you know, and Larry Nasser was sitting on the, on the stand and he wrote a statement going like, this is causing me pain. Mm. You know, I want to escape this. And, she, you know, and the judge took the statement and tore it up and threw it on the ground and said, you have to listen to what these women have to say. And I'm going to, you know, sort of center their voices and their experience in this moment. Um, and then, and, and that to me was the the thing that I just, you know, it, it was a, an example of the thing that I describe um, it, or that I call, you know, a reckoning that I want to be able to tell this person who harmed me the ways that he harmed me. And I want that to be sort of acknowledged and validated in a public way. I do want him to admit it, to say, yes, I harmed you in these ways and to not gaslight me, to not, you know, sort of try to twist my words and my experience so that I doubt myself. Um, and then what happens to him after that, I honestly don't really care. I, I wish that he would go and, as I say, spend his life in service to other people's joy. Um, but after that, I think our, our paths can fork 
and he goes his way and I go mine and what happens to him is not really my concern. Well, I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy the most about the reckonings is that whether we're talking about injustice or violence that's happening to an individual or to a community or to an ecosystem, in all of those essays, you're not um, focusing on the what should happen to the perpetrator right. and you're focusing on what should or what could happen to us in response. And I also feel like the other side is a, um, a great example of you um, enacting this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you have this quote that I want to read that said, the hardest, most important work I've done has meant turning a story I couldn't tell into one I can. And I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on that process, the writing process as a writer in relationship to this idea of decoupling um, your own self-worth and self-enactment from whatever's going to happen to this other person. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see those two connected? Do you see the, 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 um, the creation of your own narrative on the page as part of that process? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I certainly do. I think you know, the experience, and more so for the other side than necessarily for the reckonings, maybe. Um, because when I wrote The Other Side, and this was maybe the other thing that I, I felt I found so shocking about that question, um, you know, like, what do you want to have to happen to him? You probably want him dead. Because I felt like writing The Other Side was a work of justice. You know, I, I felt like that's it, that it, that book was a was a form of justice for me that that my voice and my story and the fact that I was able to like go to these places and and tell the story with my own voice and be alive <laughs> itself was a form of justice and it just sort of struck me as as so confusing that other people couldn't see that so maybe that was why I wanted to explain it a little bit in the reckonings and say no don't you see this um what's well, also the perfect mm-hmm. jumping off point for these right. larger questions too, right. to start with something very um, connected to your personal life before right. we're talking about, say, the BP oil disaster, right. for instance. Right. But I think, you know, I think um, one of the things that I found really helpful if, in terms of craft and, and the process of writing it, both in my story and these other um you know, for my own trauma and these other violences that I, that I describe in the reckonings is thinking of, you know, the sort of story of the violence itself is in many ways, um, just a symptom of a larger structural problem that we're, and we're able to see the symptoms. And, and maybe this answers your previous question just a little bit too, because, you know, if we see these men, doing this terrible thing and we're just focusing on the actions themselves and just like how do we punish this person for this one thing that they did that that person ends up becoming almost a kind of um i don't know it's a it's a that's not only where the problem is yes we need to address that harm of course we do but also we need to look at what are the structures and institutions and like attitudes and biases that we have in this culture that make that behavior um, possible and permissible in the first place. And tracing a narrative up that sort of line of accountability and permissibility and causality um, 
is is one of the things that I describe of like turning a story that I can't tell into one that I can. Um, and, the, and the line that comes after that is that that's not only a, a process of discovery, but of healing. Um, that understanding that that it wasn't just the choices that I made or the choices that he made in many ways that there was a, a broader um, structure and an institution of misogyny and patriarchy and white supremacy that make this violence per- permissible in the first place. And yes, we need to address the harm, but we also need to address those other kinds of um, sort of structural injustices um, in order to, to move forward. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Lacey M. Johnson about her essay collection, The Reckonings. So this this notion made me think of your lecture at the Tanau Summer Writers Workshop mm-hmm. called On Likeability, where you talk about the double bind of likability for women, both the ways women diminish themselves to be liked by men, but also how there is no right way for women to be assertive and visible and vocal without someone calling them unlikable. And you say in that lecture, raped women are unlikable, apparently. So are strong women, women who survive. Ambitious women are unlikable. Women who are good at their jobs, women who tell the truth. Women who don't take shit are unlikable. Women who burn bridges, women who know what they are worth. It definitely feels like a call to arms mm-hmm. in a good way, in the best of ways. And But I was struck by a juxtaposition with Casey Lehman's lecture because you're you're both dealing with reckoning, but in such a different way. And that, and I wanted to just unpack that a little bit. Um, both of you have written books that involve personal inventory in a certain way um, around the ways that we've harmed others, of not hiding behind our histories of being harmed as an excuse for the harm that we've caused ourselves. But Casey's lecture seemed very much about being deeply skeptical of the stories we tell, very hyper vigilant of the ways we delude ourselves and where we place ourselves in the stories that we tell. And the gesture of this process for seemed to me less a call to arms, less sort of a raised fist and more a process of, a, of stripping away all the, th- all the ways that we dodge accountability. And I guess I wondered if on a general level, if this was a gender difference in the sense that um, perhaps in the most general way, a man's reckoning would look more like this, um, where your talk calling for a woman to take more space to create a, a sense of self independent of the metric of being liked by another, and Kiesi decentering himself almost as a narrative corrective to the phenomenon of, of let's say, manspreading. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in, in your talk, you speak of how you don't care if men like your work. And Kiesi's talk, he goes so far as to reach out to the women who harmed him as a child to hear their side of the story. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different move. I feel like you're circling around the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on on when you place those two gestures together. Hmm. I mean, I had not thought about them as being gendered. You know, um, after the two talks, Kiesi and I were planning to sort of do a mutual interview um, and, and we started and, um, and we're talking around some of these issues too. Um, but I think one of the things that is a slight difference is that, you know, he's thinking about 
the harm that he's done, right? And and how to take responsibility for the harm that he's done and also give space, you know, to other people's voices and, and to reckon with um, his impulse to lie about, and to be clear, this is how I understand his work. I don't want to be speaking for him, but um, how to, how his impulse to lie about his own intentions, to make himself look better, to, um, you know, to sort of package himself in an untruthful way in order to be able to sort of, to write it, to tell the story. And, um, and maybe, and, and he's also suffered a lot of harm, right? And he's writing about that too. And how those things, um, in many ways, a, a person can absorb the harm that they've done, and, or, excuse me, absorb the harm that has been done to them. And that sometimes it comes out sideways, you know, at the people that we love as, as violence, as, as abuse, um, which is not to say that it's correct. It's just a, perhaps another, again, a symptom of, of violence. Um, and, and I think I am writing about and thinking about more, I guess, the harm that, I don't know, I just, I'm thinking about the equation in a slightly different way, how when we do, when, when wrong is done to us and when we do wrong, we don't necessarily t- need to take up less room or close ourselves. Um, and I think of that gesture of taking less room maybe as, as shutting things down, but we need to be more open and, um, and I like the thing that you're saying about taking more room and more space for our voices and for women's voices in particular. And, um, but I also think that um, I'm not necessarily thinking of it as like colonizing that space as much as sort of making it available, not occupying it, but making it visible and, um, and opening it to conversation and and discourse and discussion rather than, um, yeah, rather than colonizing it, rather than shutting it down. So, um, but I don't necessarily think of those things as, as gendered Mm -hmm. per se. Well, I'd love to pivot to talk about the way the reckonings deals with the question of whiteness. Mm. Um, because in a, in, a, in a certain way, you do this move when you're when you're, you're talking about how um, when we're talking about what happened to you, for instance, you want to focus on well on on yourself and on your own self autonomy and and, uh, and versus what's going to happen to the the perpetrator of the act. And I feel like this move hap- happens over and over again in, in the reckonings. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like an ethics uh, essentially, and it, similarly. You do you take other things that could be approached in a passive and a sort of external way, and you activate them and make them something internal. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the the way that, despite the way white people generally act, you insist that race is not something over there; it's something right, right here, and mm-hmm. it implicates us all. Um, so, I would love to start this discussion about whiteness um, if you would talk about the incident that happened in school um, when you were writing student that sort of became the kernel Mm. of the essay against whiteness. And then maybe we can take it from there. 
Sure. So when I was still in graduate school, I was in a poetry workshop um, with uh, several other women, um, and the our, our faculty member was a, a woman of color who I admired and continue to admire a lot. Um, and she was maybe one of, let's say, three women of color in the room. And one week we had a conversation. Someone in the class had said, has anyone read this other faculty member's new book? Um, and the other faculty member was a, a white man. And we had not, none of us had read the new book. We weren't studying with him. We were studying with this other person. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the person who brought this up said, you know, cause you know, I'm wondering because, um, these poems seem racist and, uh, and so we had not read them. And I think the next week, I don't remember exactly the timeline, but I, I think the next week, um, we came back and we had copies of the poems and we all agreed they were yes, definitely racist. And there were really complicated, bad, ugly things going on in these poems. Um, and so the week after that, um, the, the white poet was invited to, and the white, and the white poet was very senior, um, was invited to come to the classroom where I guess we were going to just have a conversation and try to figure out sort of what was going on. Um, and, um, the conversation began, he, you know, he sort of sauntered in and was like, Hey ladies, I hear you have some <laughs> questions about my book, you know, which is maybe not the right note to start on already. Um, but you know, cause it's so full of so much like bravura and, and, you know, bravado and just like, you know, toxic masculinity and things like that. And so someone said, well, yes, like we, we have some questions about these poems and sort of how, how race is working in these poems. Um, it, you know, it's, it seems troubling to us. And, um, he instantly began shouting, um, was so defensive, was yelling at the student, was yelling at the faculty member, was yelling at all of us. Um, he told one of my, um, my peers to shut up, um, when she was talking and he told, um, this woman that I admired, the, the faculty member, his call, his junior colleague, um, that the poem that, you know, when she expressed some concern over these poems, he said, these poems are not written for you. These poems are written for white people. And, um, yeah, it's chilling. Like I, I just feel like, uh, it, it makes me so ill to think about, um, now. Uh, and maybe one of the things that makes me just as ill is that, um, I didn't say anything while all that was going on. And I have deep shame and regret about that. Um, I felt like my jaw was on the table. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, that this was happening. Um, you know, and all, you know, th that the fact that there was a faculty member behaving in this way, I also felt like I have not ever known what to say to a man who's exploding under the pressure of his own narcissism. Um, but at that, at that time, I didn't say anything. I knew what I was seeing was wrong, and I, and I didn't say anything. 
Um, and eventually he stormed out of the room. Um, and one of the other classmates, who was one of the other women of color, she turned to me and she said, like, where were you just now? Like, why didn't you show up here? And, and I didn't have an answer. And I knew that staying silent was wrong. Um, and it was wrong and I did it anyway. And, um, so I guess the essay tries to begin unpacking that, like why I felt like, like the ways that that silence was not only wrong right at that moment, but in many ways is what whiteness has meant um, to me all along in my life. And in many ways, what whiteness requires, all white people do, is that we witness wrong, terrible things happening to people of color and comply with them, accept them, look away, and just remain silent. That our privilege and um, identity in many ways uh, relies on our being complicit with the oppression of people of color. You don't mention in the essay or or now who your teacher is and who the guest poet is, but because both poets have written and spoken about it publicly and other poets have written and spoken about it publicly and because Claudia Rankin and I talked about the incident with Mm. Tony Hoagland on the show when she was here, I kind of wanted to use their exchange as a jumping off point about whiteness and also the idea of what reckoning could look like. Yeah. So for context, at an AWP conference, Claudia Rankin read the poem many of your classmates thought was racist by Tony Hoagland, and then read both a letter she addressed to him and a response that he prepared for her to read. And Claudia Rankin's address begins with a paragraph that goes, I don't like using the word racist because if you use it, it means you're an angry black person. Angry black people are the old black, and everyone knows that's pathological. The new black is accomplished, assimilated, and integrated. The new black reaches across the aisle. The old black is positioned in a no-win situation where to express an opinion based on what you see, experience, feel, or deduce risks falling right into some white folk's notion of black insanity. And later in this letter, she speaks to how things in your class derailed between him and her and says, Needless to say, before our conversation started, it was over. I can still see myself back then confused at the rate of escalation, given that I was so used to everyone reassuring everyone that everyone accepted everyone and race didn't matter. Who let America in the room? How did things get out of hand so quickly? I sometimes wonder if one of us had had the presence of mind to say, easy, slave girl, slow down, grand wizard. Could anyone have laughed? And I love that last line Mm -hmm. so much that, um, but for that last line to occur, it seems to me that both parties would have to acknowledge that they live in a world where they are complicit in certain constructions of race that they that themselves didn't invent or create, but which to various degrees they're perpetuating. Mm. Um, so you write about this, about mm. whiteness as a construct, and you've even gone so far as to call whiteness terrorism. Yeah. And I would love for you to unpack this way of looking at whiteness for us a little bit. Um, so 
As I was saying um, just just a moment ago, I think um, whiteness very much depends on violence. Violence is how whiteness and the boundaries of whiteness is policed. Um, whiteness demands the oppression of people of color. Whiteness did not exist um, as a construct until, you know, the 17th century when it was invented to justify kidnapping um, other humans and, and selling them as slaves. Um, and ever since, it has been a sort of tool for creating social hierarchy, for perpetuating the lie that we have what we deserve and we deserve what we have, that everyone is in their proper place and that this is due to some kind of biological reality. Um, and I think that that, yeah, I think that that is terrorism um, to suggest that that humans should be placed into a, a biological hierarchy. You know, I'm thinking about this now for a different project. Um, there's this, and I'm going to sort of, and I know that I'm kind of going around the question slightly, um, but there's this guy named Ernst Hegel. He's a German, he's maybe contemporaries with Darwin. Um, and I came to his work um, because I'm very interested in these diagrams and drawings that he made. He's very well known for the, his drawings of radiolaria, these sort of microscopic sea creatures. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful, spectacular drawings. And, um, and I came to them and realized that, um, that there was no biography of him in English. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll write one because, you know, he's a philosopher. He's a biologist, you know biologist. He's, um, you know, a physician. He was many things and just seemed like a kind of fascinating person. But as I began, um, scratching at the surface, I, I discovered, you know, he was a best-selling author essentially in his day, his works were extremely popular and the, what he wrote about, um, his most popular works were on eugenics, um, and that he was a eugenicist, um, and that his ideas about nature, um, uh, sort of we have inherited them to this day he he placed humans not in in separate races but in separate species right and we don't um and and that there was a clear hierarchy with white men at the very top and all other species sort of on the tree going down right that they were more inferior closer to nature closer to you know um less evolved and um we don't still hold the idea that Humans are different species, but we still talk about race as if it's a biological reality, as if it's something real, um, instead of something that's, you know, policed and constructed. Um, the idea of white women in particular, and, and maybe that's one of the things that I'm thinking about in that essay, is sort of my role and culpability and responsibility and accountability as a white woman um, in this world or something that's intelligible and recognizable as a white woman in this world to the particular history that has been, um, you know, particular history of violence that's been perpetuated on the bodies of people of color um, in, 
in protection or preservation of, of my body as a, as a product, as a sort of vessel through which to perpetuate white supremacy. Um, and so I'm thinking about how I, like what my, um, where my responsibility and allegiances should lie in that. Um, and I think the conclusion that I come to is that we have a moral responsibility, white people do in particular, to dismantle white supremacy, to destroy whiteness as much as possible, to be very bad white people, and, um, and, and to sort of reject and acknowledge the ways in which privilege is constantly being offered to us, um, and that we, you know, as the inventors and beneficiaries of white supremacy... It is our. It, it should not be the burden of people of color to do that work. That we should also be engaged in that work. And, and in many ways, you know, we we made that mess, and we should help to clean it up. And I think there's maybe a spell that's cast in the sense that you you didn't do anything actively bad in the room. Like you didn't come to Tony Hoagland's defense. That the fact that you weren't doing anything actively bad meant that you weren't doing something bad like there's that made me it makes me think of the audrey lord quote that in a racist society it's not enough to be non-racist mm. you have to be anti-racist right um and and you you bring up another metaphor the beverly tatum's metaphor of the mm. conveyor belt of history right could, could you share that one with us Sure. I mean, the way that I understand that metaphor is, um, you know, it's like the conveyor belt at the airport, right? The sort of the walking escalator when you can get on and just just stand there and move along. Um, that we're all kind of riding along this conveyor belt um, in the direction of white supremacy because this conveyor belt of history is essentially white supremacist. If we stand there and do nothing, we're still being carried along with it. People who are uh, Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists, whatever euphemism we're creating for terrorists these days, um, they are sort of running along as fast as they can along the conveyor belt, and the conveyor belt is helping to propel them, but they are moving also in that direction. But even people who are just standing still and doing nothing are being carried along. And so we actively have to turn around and walk the other direction and not just walk but run. And one of the things I like about that metaphor, which I don't think Beverly Tatum raises, but it's one of the things that I think we've seen a lot lately, is how disruptive that will be and and the way that it will be seen as disruptive by other people who are just standing there on the conveyor belt. Um, Because if you actually imagine you know, that conveyor belt and you're, you're going to sort of, um, you know, put a wrench in it. Um, people are going to say, Hey, what are you doing? Like, why can't you just go along? Or if you turn around and you walk the wrong way, people are saying, why, why are you going this way? Go the other way. Like we're all moving in this direction. And I think about people like Colin Kaepernick, right? Who, um, who people were saying like, why can't you just play football? Why can't you just go along and do your job? Why do you have to be, um, you know, why do you have to do this? Why can't you just like keep things the way that they are? And that, you know, that action and actions like that are disruptive on purpose. And and one of the things that I think it helps us see is the way in which we are all being carried along that conveyor belt, that actions like that allow us to observe the way that we are, um, you know, that we are in motion um, in ways that maybe a lot of people don't feel. Um, 
And and you're right. Like I didn't necessarily actively participate. I didn't take Tony Hoagland's side. I have never defended him. I've barely even spoken to him. I mean, he's he's passed now, but while he was living, um, I, I wanted nothing to do with him at all. But I think that's not enough, right? It's, it's not enough to just say nothing and to sort of feel bad about it um, in my heart. You know, I... And I don't even know that it would have been enough to participate in the argument in that moment. Um, I don't think that anything that I can say or do could actually ever possibly be enough. That this is going to be work that will go on throughout our lifetimes, beyond our lifetimes, um, and that I have no sense of what the level of success might be. But I feel compelled and responsible to do it anyway. Can you talk a little bit about your realization at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama? Because it feels linked to the, to what we're discussing right now, too. Yeah, I um, I have not yet sorted my thoughts about that experience. So I went to the opening of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in the Legacy Museum almost a year ago in Montgomery, Alabama. Um. And I wanted, I, I don't know why I went. I just felt really compelled to go. I think I maybe thought I was going to write about it. But I have, of course, realized the way in which my voice is not the one that's most necessary in that conversation. So I want to be very careful today also about um, about how I talk about this. Um, but I think, um, you know, I went and and the the opening was celebrated with a, a kind of symposium and there were many panels and many speakers. And, um, and then I went to the memorial itself, which is um, profoundly moving in, 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 in beautiful and terrible ways. Um, and it's, you know, it of course spoke to me a lot. There's a way in which um, the memorial allows you to visualize the kind of full loss and to, and it gives space to feel grief um, for that loss f- for everyone. It gives a lot of space for people whose family members were lynched in acts of racial terror. And it gives space for um, people like myself, you know, white people from who maybe spent a lot of time telling themselves that they had no connection to the history of racial terror, but in fact find that we are all implicated in the history of racial terror. And I think it 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 helps us it helps make that visible in the way that this is not a history that's unique to the South. It's not a history that's that's unique to Alabama. It's a history that we all share. Um, and for which we must all be accountable. So I went there, and then I went to the Legacy Museum, um, which does a very excellent job of revealing the history, the the way that there's a sort of single unbroken line from chattel slavery through um, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, um, you know, the sort of history of racial terror and mass incarceration and the death penalty, that it's, that it's a, a single unbroken line um, of, of, of racial terror. 
And um, there's a, a moment in the museum, there's an exhibit, a sort of interactive exhibit that that has the sort of photographs of lynchings. Um, and you have to, it's sort of censored, and you have to click the screen to choose to look at it. Um, and it's, you know, these are horrifying images, and um, it's, it's deeply difficult to look at them. Um, but one of the things that I think the museum asks us to do, and asks white people in particular to do, is to notice the other white people, I mean, not just to sort of pay pay attention to the violence that's being done and that and to and to grieve that um but also to pay attention to the white people who are who are in those photographs um because there are crowds often you know some lynchings had you know crowds of 10,000 people who were public events like people would have picnics um and 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 when you look at the photograph you don't have a sense of like which people, you know, chose to be there and which people were just, you know, there to watch and which piece people got dragged there by their family members. Like, they're all in it and they're all um, sort of implicated and they're all sort of looking at the violence and participating in it or doing nothing. Um, but it's, it's, it's there and they're, and they're seeing it. And there's sort of their faces are very blank um, looking. And I think one of the things that I realized in doing that is the way in which um, that violence continues today, of course. You know, when we see these videos of police killing um, African-Americans and we watch and do nothing we are just like the people in that photograph who are looking on history. And, and, and I believe that history will see us in the same way. Um, but one of the things that I re- realized in the museum is that we have a choice to make. If we do nothing, we will continue to be like the people in those photographs, right? And we will be continue to be implicated in this history. We will continue to bear responsibility for it. And, and we do bear responsibility for it no matter what. But we can also choose to join the fight for racial justice and that then we are helping to correct the situation. We are, we are fighting the fight. And that is how, um, you know, if we join the fight for justice, then... Um, I don't know. I think that that gives us a, a path forward. Um, you know, when, when issues of racial inequality, I think to many white people feel very overwhelming and they don't know how to, how to participate or, or how, like, maybe they're aware, like, I know that I have white privilege and I don't know what to do about it. And I know that racial inequality exists, but, but what do I do? I think that joining the fight for racial justice is like step one, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there are p- elders in this fight who will show us the way forward from there. Hmm. Well, I, I like that you bring up some contemporary issues, too, because I would imagine a lot of liberal minded people might find it inconceivable that they're connected to these postcards and images of yeah. the lynchings, even even as we are. Um I've been intrigued and engaged with the way you've been in distrusting the impulse of many white people to distance themselves from 
the actions of other white people who are doing the most extreme or ugliest acts of whiteness. Mm. Um, so for instance, with regards to the blackface news cycle in Virginia, for instance, and a lot of comments suggesting Virginia is a rogue state or what the hell is in the water in Virginia. Mm. And you suggest that this could be anywhere. And you demonstrate that in fact, it is true where you work. Yeah. Um, and with regards to the teenage boys who wore the MAGA hats and surrounded the Omaha elder Nathan Phillips, you were also suspicious of all the focus being on what should happen to the smirking boy. Mm. And you say white folks don't get to claim some kind of moral high ground by holding this one boy or a group of boys accountable. These boys are the product of the violent and hateful history of whiteness in America. And white folks shouldn't pretend that we're not also accountable just because we're disgusted to see the ugly way it works. This is how it has always worked. Instead of worrying about what we're going to do about the problem with these boys, we might start worrying about what we're going to do about the problem of ourselves. Mm. And I guess I wondered if the first step, I mean, you say the first step is joining the fight of racial justice, but I kind of wonder if the first step is skepticism of that isn't me. Mm. Um, uh, that to the first step is to confront the problem, what you call the problem of ourselves. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think of that as step zero. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. That, um, that I think, you know, okay, so maybe you're right. So step one is to understand that you have a problem, right. And step two is to sort of begin doing something about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's very, um, convenient for people, especially when they see these sort of acts of, you know, hatred. I mean, I, I think the MAGA hats themselves are, uh, you know, they're like the clan hoods at this point, except they're so much more bold because, um, the people wearing them don't feel like they need to cover their faces. Like they have no shame. Um, and, but I think they represent the same thing, this, this sort of badge and emblem of, of white supremacy. And for a lot of, you know, as you say, liberal minded or even progressive people uh, and white people in particular who say, who, who see these people um, and they call them those, you know, like those people, the MAGA hats, the, the Trump supporters, the, the middle America people, like there's a lot of sort of work by white people of saying, oh, that problem is over there. Um, that problem isn't in my own backyard where I send my kids to school. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, the ways that I am uncomfortable with, um, you know, public school with, um, integration. You know, I'm thinking of, for example, like some of the issues going on in Brooklyn, right around, um, around their schooling. Um, or the way that I, you know, choose the neighborhood where I live, um, and that I that I think of my good neighborhood as being synonymous with a white neighborhood. Um, I think that we don't examine the ways in which we are all implicated in the MAGA hat boy's attitudes. That that in many ways he is a a symptom of a larger structural inequality in which we all participate in, you know more or less active ways. And, and I think we again, again, we again come back to that sort of conveyor belt where, you know, if the MAGA hat is sort of boy, <laughs> the smirking MAGA hat boy is sort of walking along maybe slowly ish or running on the, on the conveyor belt. And we can't, 
um, say, even by turning around and walking the way other way, that we're not still on the same conveyor belt with him, right? Um, that we are all, and and I think white people in particular are responsible um, for for that boy, for the conditions that have created him, for. Um, for, you know, the school that he attends, for um, the state where he lives, because he has learned this from us, from this culture, from the way that we, um, you know, if we can refer again to those movies, like the Marvel movies at the beginning, the way whiteness is valorized, the way that masculinity is valorized, the way that um, sort of toxic strength is seen as a, as a, you know, as a badge of honor. And um, I think those things are all interrelated. Well, I'd like to take this this question of whiteness and and the question of joining the fight for racial justice into the realm of writing mm. a little bit. Um, if we do nothing, if going about our business as usual, if living our lives as white people, if that upholds the construction of whiteness by default. Mm. Um, it raises interesting questions, I think, for white writers. In a way, I feel like the you not saying anything in the room and the way so many white writers, um, whiteness do, isn't part of of the way they write, whatever, regardless of, right. of what it is. And, and one of the pieces that I love most that was written in the aftermath of the Hoagland-Rankin exchange was by the poet Major Jackson. Mm. And he wrote a piece for the American Poetry Review called a mystifying silence, big and black. And in it, he says, whatever the reason, the mystifying silence around race highlights white American poets, unsettling and conspicuous unresponsiveness and ambivalence towards a very important aspect of social life in America. One given heft by our founding documents, our history of, of immigration and war and by our being a beacon for so many disenfranchised people across the globe who arrive, he arrive here with the hope of interweaving into the fabric of our democracy. And he goes on to look at and analyze the rare poetry by white poets that does engage with race, from Sharon Olds to Elizabeth Bishop to Tony Hoagland. And this question of white writers also came up recently in a, in a tweet by Kiesi Lehman, about the blackface debacle in Virginia, and that tweet went, they found pictures of a governor in either full-on blackface or in a KKK costume when he was a grown-ass man, and not one white writer in this country has written an essay to white folks about the pleasures of investing bodily, intellectually, and spiritually in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So I guess I kind of wanted to hear your, th your thoughts on this. Uh, on the ways whiteness doesn't just make white people see themselves as the default, the universal, and that it isn't about them, but how whiteness is reflected in, in white writing and what you think about as a writer and a writing teacher in that regard. Oh, that's a hard question. I think whiteness reveals itself in writing in lots of different ways. And the way that I think disturbs me most is the way in which whiteness appears and just goes unexamined. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable naming names of like particular writers who do this, but I think it's the, 
it's the rule rather than the exception is that white writers think that by writing about, you know, writing their literary fiction about a trip to the beach or the dissolution of a marriage or, you know, whatever kind of small adventure of the heart, that that is not also a book about whiteness um, and how whiteness works and and even the fact that it can go and that race goes without being mentioned, I think, is an expression of whiteness. Um, the way in which people um, and characters move um, through narratives without thinking about the way their body is read and understood and threatened or unthreatened, um, I think is an expression of whiteness. I think in, you know, nonfiction more in particular, you know, and honestly, I just don't read that much of it. I'm really not interested in work that's, that's not, um, you know, trying to, you know, think about these, these systemic inequalities. I, I just have, life is short and the world is burning and there's not enough time. But, you know, it's, it seems to be very popular. You know, it sells really well, this work that's about pop culture or, you know, um, a pleasure cruise or, you know, a visit to Maine Lobster Festival, for example, you know, to call out David Foster Wallace, <laughs> um, but he's dead. Um, like that, that, you know, it seems to be um, that it gets called, you know, masterful and virtuosic and that these people are geniuses because of their craft and their focus on craft and that that itself is also an expression of whiteness and privilege, the way that certain writers are able to be to just like um, or the way that people talk about them is just about their sentences and not about them as um, you know, as writers with adjectives in, in front of their names as a black writer or Korean writer or, you know, an Asian writer or a queer writer or anything like that, like that itself to be sort of understood by critics in the marketplace as a writer rather than a white writer is itself an expression of whiteness and of privilege. Um, I think in my teaching, um, you know, I, I'm, I am trying to help students be reflective and do some self-examination about the way, I mean, I, I couch it as craft, right? As the way that your privilege is working or the way that your blind spots are being revealed in this essay and, and you need to examine them. But really that's a way of sort of getting them to think about um, their, their privilege and their, and their whiteness in the world. Hmm. Well, fi- five years after the... Rankin Hoagland response mm-hmm. or back and forth. Uh, Claudia Rankin gave an address at, at AWP again, uh, one that I really loved, and it takes this um, this question into sort of the level of pedagogy. I think where she used a phrase I hadn't heard used before called race acknowledgement, mm-hmm. which reminded me of of the tradition of land acknowledgements of of acknowledging the occupied native land that mm-hmm. we're on. Um, but where white writers would acknowledge the whiteness of their characters or speakers rather than continuing to reinforce whiteness as sort of the invisible transcendent default 
And she reads this published poem by a poet she admires, Joshua Weiner, um, that he revised after hearing her give this talk at a different point. And the poem was an elegy to a childhood summer day where he ended up reinstating a black friend that wasn't part of the poem originally. And he'd published the poem without, without the black friend who he'd erased from his memory. And in doing so, when he brought that, that friend back into the poem, he also ended up bringing back in um, school busing in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, it gets touched on in the poem as well. And there's this just really wonderful way that Claudia Rankin looks at the two mm. poems. Um, it feels like it underscores your statement in the book that whiteness is a moral moral choice, ultimately. Right. And that Joshua's looking back at his own published work and revising it um, and even liking the poem better on its own merits mm-hmm. uh, on top of it. Um, it may be part of that process. Yeah, I mean, I is it a process of the moral choice of whiteness? Um, so I think um, maybe that's part of the process, but I think the way that um, that he's still participating as a white poet in whiteness um, isn't is still. And I, and I don't know the poem, and I, 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 I'm sorry that I don't recall that lecture um, completely. But I think one of the things that I'm talking about in, in my essay is the way in which we as white people should work for the abolition of whiteness. And I don't mean that we murder white people <laughs> when I say that. You know, I, I use that term, um, I think, with Noel Ignatiev, who says um, when when he talks about the abolition of the white race, um, he, it would be like talking about the abolition of the monarchy, right? And he doesn't mean that you murder kings and queens. He means that you destroy the structure of privilege and acknowledgement that, that creates certain people as, as ruling over others. Um, and I think that we work for the abolition of whiteness. I do think that sort of paying attention, you know, the way that and many times in white writers writing, um, race goes acknowledged as something again over there um that the black friend is the person who has race rather than the white poet who wrote the poem um with the black friend in it right um and so i think um just sort of being cognizant of that is i I suppose a step um but i think the thing that i'm more interested in is 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 um not necessarily the acknowledgement as a stopping point, but maybe one in a wide set of strategies and methods um, for, I guess, first making race um, visible, mm-hmm. uh, whiteness as as a racial category um, visible, but that that is in no way a sort of stopping point. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Lacey M. Johnson about her essay collection, The Reckonings. Well, let's pivot to the essays and in, in the reckonings that deal with climate apocalypse, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be the BP oil spill, the now many once in a century floods hitting hitting Houston, or people living near a landfill full of nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. In all of these cases, the disaster that is heading our way is is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, talk just about why you wanted to extend the question of reckoning 
into this arena of man-made um, ecological disaster? Sure. So I think, um, I guess I think of that man-made ecological disaster as another form that violence takes. Um, I think by the time that you get to those essays in the collection, one of the things I'm hoping to reveal is that these essays are almost like spokes on a wheel. And at the center of all of them is, you know, this sort of, um, again, this sort of structural inequality that places um, whiteness, maleness, heterosexuality, you know, being cisgendered, sort of at the center, that at the center of this violence in all its forms is, you know, cisgendered, heteronormative, white supremacist patriarchy. Um, And that one of the forms that the violence of that takes is on the environment. Um, You know, the BP oil spill in particular, you know, I live in Houston, um, which is, you know, home to one of the largest petrochemical complexes in the world. Um, and the ways that, um, you know, there, there are kind of ecological violences that the, the petro industries um, perpetuate and require, but also the, the sort of invisible violence of um, those sort of sacrifice zones, the fence line communities, usually um, poor brown and black um, people living in low-income neighborhoods near these industrial areas. Um, and the fact that, you know, uh, in, in Houston along the ship channel, which is where the, the petrochemical industry is, the risk, and, and it's a densely populated area sort of around that. Um, and it's called the, you know, the East End or the Second Ward or, or um you know, sort of over on that side um, of town, your risk of developing cancer if you live within two miles of the Houston Ship Channel is 56% greater, 57% greater than if you live anywhere else. Um, and that that itself is also a form of violence. And, you know, given that I'm trying to think about um, – you know, justice in this book and, and who to hold accountable for that. Um, I think one of the things that I realize in, in that essay and also in the fallout is the way in which we all kind of accept this violence being done against these people who are suffering and being asked to sort of sacrifice their lives um, so that we can, you know, drive our cars, um, so that we can fly on planes, so that we can... Um, have heat in our homes um, in ways that are completely inefficient and toxic um, for the environment as well as for these communities. So, um, you know, I think the violence that produces sexual assault, um, racial violence, um, racial terrorism is the same as what produces this sort of these ecological environmental violences against the planet and against um, the people in these communities. Hmm. Well, before I ask the next question, I was hoping you'd read a short paragraph from What We Pay, Hmm. uh, where you and your students are at a protest against BP demanding accountability for the oil spill. And then it hits me. They are already paying for this and may have been all along. At the end of the day, they'll come home to this neighborhood. 
they will settle into bed breathing air that may one day kill them. And the fishermen and tribal elders sitting around the circle with their heads against their knees will return to their homes along the Gulf Coast. Or maybe their homes are already gone. I'll drive across town to where I've bought a house in a suburban neighborhood, probably with money I didn't even fairly earn, where I grow vegetables in my garden and my children play in the green manicured yard. At night, I go to sleep dreaming the American dream. My students are paying for every benefit I reap, and the injustice of that is staring me right in the face. So when I when I think of this and also the way you characterize your environmental essays as posing some difficult uh, self-incriminating questions, mm-hmm. such as how do we reckon with a crime we're still committing? How do we heal ourselves from an addiction to destruction when we can't stop destroying what we fear? My first response, and I'm guessing it's not an uncommon one, is one of helplessness, mm-hmm. bordering on hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess... I wanted to, again, I um, wonder about is, is showing up, is linking arms like you're doing in this scene, even with its noted limitations, is showing up and linking arms with people who are more harmed. Mm. Um, is that, do you see that as the first step with regards to this? You know, I think um, there are several kind of responses in this essay that I wanted to document. One is, I think, my own, which is showing up um, and linking arms and sort of becoming aware of the ways in which um, my behaviors and things that I take for granted um, are in many ways perpetuating violence against the people I I claim to be in allegiance with. Um, So maybe that's step zero, right? Um, And then there's another woman in the essay um, who, well, there are several women in the essay, there are several women in all of these essays, right? But there's another woman in this essay who I see at a protest at the, you know, it's a protest at the, on the fifth anniversary of the BP oil spill, um, is the sort of, you know, occasion for writing this piece. Um, and I see her there and I recognize her, but I can't figure out where I recognize her from. And she's, you know, clearly part of this community and and is active and knows a lot of people. Um, and, and I keep seeing her throughout the day that we are protesting. And I eventually see her at this. Um, so after the protest, there was a, a ceremony at the um, at the offices of one of the organizations that was helped to organize the, the protest. And there's a Mayan prayer ceremony in the in the back. Um, which I was not expecting um, to happen. I'm a, I'm a little surprised by that. But the the elder is um, sort of putting things into the fire, sort of, um, and and leading this um, this ceremony. And people are um, offering things and and asking for things in return. And um, this woman I recognize, um, you know, puts her puts her you know, batch of things into the fire. So she offers this um, um, bundle of, um, I think it was herbs to the fire, and says that um, she doesn't actually want anything in return. And then I recognize her as a student I had had in a community writing workshop um, several years earlier. 
and she had been a geologist working for the oil industry. And in the course of the workshop, she only turned in, she only submitted some writing one time, um, but it was about, um, one was about yoga, I think, and the other was about um, this sort of panic, this, this climate panic and realizing that's, you know, that's sort of having those kind of desperate, hopeless feelings that you describe, um, realizing that she's participating in the devastation of the, of the earth and, and also putting people she loves at harm or in harm's way. Um, and she said, um, that she wanted, uh, she said somebody like, you know, she, what she wrote was like, somebody has to do something. And during the, towards the end of the workshop, she talked about how she was going to quit her job, she was going to sell all her possessions, that she was going to sort of bike across the country. Um, and, and whatever path she followed, I don't quite know, but it, it brought her back to this ceremony where what I think she wanted was absolution. Like she wanted redemption for the harm that she had caused. And I think that feeling that we have of desperation is that feeling of like, oh shit, <laughs> like we've really done terrible things here and there's no way to correct it. I mean, the problem is there's no redemption to be had. Um, but I don't think that necessarily means that, again, that we shouldn't change our lives, that we shouldn't um, correct our behaviors be aware of how much oil we are consuming, the ways that it permeates our lives, and to demand another way to hold ourselves accountable for finding other ways of being that are more in harmony um, with the earth and with one another. Given that we're, we have a, a large number of writers and artists who are listening as as. Mm listeners to Between the Covers, and you write about making art in the age of apocalypse. Right. Um, and you also have an interest in interdisciplinary art that you call social sculpture. Mm. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about social sculpture um, and if it fits in that conversation um, about the Houston Flood Museum as as one example of, of a way to maybe take some of these concerns into an art-making practice. Sure. So um, before I had the job that I have now, um, my job was to teach interdisciplinary art at University of Houston. And um, one of the art forms that I think I'm most drawn to and most excited by is, you know, what Joseph Boys called social sculpture, which I think is now more called social practice, right? Um, and he used the term social sculpture to describe a set of practices that are relational, um, participatory, that we could change our idea of what art is from a product that is made in isolation by a single, you know, solitary genius into something sort of trans, like make it collaborative um, with an audience, that audience and in many ways participate in the art making and 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 become artists themselves and he believed that that anyone could be an artist and that if you take this idea 
sort of to its fullest extreme that anything can be art, even um, even a life that that your life itself can be a work of art. Um, and you know, in more recent decades, um, these I, I I am particularly interested in the way that these ideas have been used for sort of um, social engagement and socially engaged art practices. Um, some of the art that I'm most drawn to that does this kind of work is like um, Project Row Houses in Houston um, by an artist named Rick Lowe, who was a painter um, and his paintings made work that documented social problems. And he tells this story a lot. But um, but one day, a, um, a sort of he had a studio visit from a, a group of students, and one of them said, um, "You know, why do you got to make work about problems? Like, we know what our problems are, but you're an artist and you're so creative. Why don't you make a solution?" And so then he started, um, and I don't know the exact path, but eventually he started. Um, he and another group of artists um, started Project Row Houses, which is. Um, many things at this point. It's a sort of studio program for young artists. It's a residential program for young mothers. It's a community development program. Um, There's a a really wonderful program for the young mothers where um, they live residentially, they get healthcare and daycare, they learn job skills, they get their GEDs. Um, And that this is is a work of art. Um, the, the idea that this, that something like that, this sort of activism, community engagement could be a work of art, um, has been really influential to me in, in how I think about what I do and what I can do. Um, you know, another project, project like this is the Dorchester projects in Chicago by Theaster Gates. Um, it's another really fascinating work, um, where he's just sort of buying up property or or sometimes getting it for a song, essentially, um, in in South um, Southside Chicago, and using it to sort of redevelop the neighborhood and and hosting events and buying um, or inheriting the kind of entire back run of like Jet Magazine. He um, there was a record store that was closing, and he got all their inventory. So now that's also a library of like. Um, the sort of rich history of of black music in Chicago, um, and so that 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 is a work of art. Um, I, I don't know. I found it. I find it very um, compelling and invigorating. So um, the Houston Flood Museum is a project that I've been working on with a group of other writers and artists, um, sort of in response to Hurricane Harvey. You know, I was there in Houston. Um, on the west side of Houston when Hurricane Harvey was happening and felt powerless and hopeless and desperate and I didn't know what to do and I was just kind of writing about it but on Facebook um, of all impotent things to do but it turned out to not be entirely impotent. Um, But, um, you know, sort of after the, the floodwater receded, and, you know, people were going back to work and beginning to muck out their homes. Um, there was a way that I sort of saw, like, there, people just have so much amnesia um, about flooding. And also, they don't necessarily have a sense of the way in which we're all connected. 
you know, when, so during the storm, we were mostly in our, in our house and we were kind of flooded into our house and couldn't leave because the water was too high. But eventually, um, we did evacuate and had to sort of like trudge through, you know, sewage, um, sewage infested water to escape. Um, and while we were, um, sort of staying with friends in another part of town, um, I went for, you know, it was like I had been stuck in my house for four days. So I, I went for a run to clear my head and, um, I saw this man or, or, or I was running along the street and I saw this sort of sudsy water, um, kind of going down a driveway and into the storm drain. And I look up the driveway and there's a man there like washing his car. And I just got so mad. I was just like, why are you putting water in the storm drain right now? Like, don't you know that you essentially your neighbors a few miles across town are f- like the entire first floor of their house is flooded because there's too much water in the storm drain. <laughs> like, don't put any more water in the storm drain. And just the the way that, you know, people are just so, um, you know, ignorant about the way that, that one person's actions affect another person. Um, and also in particular in Houston, the way that there's a conversation about, um, about flooding. If you don't flood, you're lucky. And if you do flood, you're unlucky. But in fact, the, it's, it's not an accident that, um, that communities that flood are, typically the ones that, you know, are, um, there's, you know, there's a, it reveals some social, uh, socioeconomic inequality, right? There are poor neighborhoods, there are black and brown neighborhoods, um, that, that the wealthy neighborhoods in many ways, um, in order that they do not flood, um, because there's a kind of equation, um, a sort of risk assessment that happens, like, who are we going to flood? We don't want to flood the $10 million homes. Let's flood the $100,000 homes, right? And so those neighborhoods get flooded. And people don't realize that their home, like, if you don't flood, it's because there was a, a um, you know, a calculation that, um, and really, in many ways, the safety of your home depends on another person's flooding. So, so I was thinking about that and um, was invited to do a project um, by the Houston Endowment. Um, and they, they, their idea had been that they wanted me to collect an anthology of stories about Harvey. And um, that seemed like a lot of work. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to just like package some stories and put them in bookstores and, and be done with it. So um, I returned to them with the idea for the Houston Flood Museum, the goal of which is to do some collective remembering about the storm, about its impact, um, to give a space for people who were um, who experienced the catastrophic flooding to um, to sort of discover a new way forward, to sort of tell the story that can't be told, and and to perhaps find some healing in that. Um, so it's a venue for that for some. Um, you know, some trauma writing and, and work and art, you know, it's a multimedia project. So, um, the work that we exhibit comes in different forms, but also to put pressure on us as a community to not have amnesia about this, to hopefully understand the ways that, that, um, we are connected, um, in, in terms of, of flooding. And in order to do this work, you know, I, I have, 
partnered with Houston Public Media, with the Houston Center for Photography, with many, um, with the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, with a lot of different organizations. Um, and there's a sort of, you know, if you can imagine it like an iceberg, all that work and those relationships are the art and the form of it that's visible is the website itself. Right. Well, I think a good place to end is is a topic that you bookend the reckonings with, mm. which is joy. The last essay is entitled Make Way for Joy. And if we return to the beginning of the book, the epigraph by Juna Barnes is the unendurable is the beginning of the curve of joy. Mm. So in grappling with misogyny and sexual violence, white supremacy, colonial violence, and the rapidly closing window of opportunity to salvage an inhabitable planet. Um, talk to us about where joy fits in. So for me, um, and it doesn't necessarily apply to all of those forms of injustice, but what I'm writing about in that particular essay is just the, the way that, you know, if we, if the historical view of justice the one that we've inherited is requires suffering and that we perpetuate suffering on another person. Um, in many ways, that definition of justice is another injustice and requires that we continue perpetuating injustice on one another. You know, you cause suffer, suffering, you must suffer and, and on and on and on. Um, you know, that it, and, and, and I think that, what I have come to at the end of that essay or what I hope to capture is, you know, if we're invested in even, let's say we're invested in symmetry, um, this symmetrical equation of like, you know, eye for an eye, you know, it's a a symmetry of suffering. Um, but I think I've realized there's another kind of symmetry that we can, we can ask for, which is if you cause, suffering, if you take joy out of the world, that perhaps um, justice means putting it back in, hmm. right? Um, rather than taking some, taking more away. And, um, and that for myself, as I, as I think about justice in my own situation with, you know, having been kidnapped and raped and very nearly murdered by, um, by this man I used to live with, justice really doesn't have anything to do with what happens to him. Um, it has to do with, with me and the way I move through the world. Um, that essay is about running. Um, I'm a runner. I'm a very slow runner. Um, but I, I like doing it and it's, um, you know, I run, um, a lot of times I run with my dog, um, or I used to run with him. He's getting a little old now, but at the time of the essay, he was still running with me. Um, and, uh, and I feel like I need to run with him because I run in the very early morning when it's dark and, um, I have not yet reached a place in my life, um, or the world has not yet reached a place in its life where I don't, I can't run without feeling afraid. Um, I can't run in the dark without feeling afraid. And so the dog comes with me because he's very large and he's very protective. Um, but I, each time I, I do this, I go through a process of feeling afraid. Um, you know, I hear a noise or something. I feel afraid. I feel afraid of being out there all alone. Um, you know, I still continue to sort of suffer the harm and the consequences of thing, that, that thing that happened 19 years ago at this point. Um, 
but then, um, you know, I sort of managed to talk myself off the ledge, um, of my own fear. Um, and I do that by acknowledging my body and what it's experiencing. Um, and then I move through a place of feeling, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm moving through the world. My legs are carrying me very slowly, but they are, um, you know, I go up hills and down hills and over bridges and, and then every morning, um, I get to see the sunrise and it's beautiful and it, uh, you know, I get a runner's high and I feel good. And the, the feeling that, that courses through my body is, is joy. And, um, and I don't feel small and afraid and vulnerable, I feel alive and free and strong and running teaches me to be present in my body. It, it helps me not just when I'm running, but it also helps me like in the rest of my life. It's, it's helped me to be more present with my children, um, you know, to be in the moment with them. I think one of the most enduring effects of having been kidnapped and raped all those years ago was that my, I have a really hard time existing in the present moment. I'm always sort of thinking about another time or the past or the future or catastrophizing forward or, or sort of experiencing a flash of a memory of the past and running has helped me train myself to be just right here in this moment. You know, the moment I write about in the essays, like I'm on the floor of my kitchen and and they're laughing and I can be right there with them laughing and that, that, um, that is joyful and, and running makes a tiny space for joy to enter my life. And I, and I, I, I do find justice in that. And thinking about then, like, what, um, I guess, sort of extrapolating outward to the other situations that I write about, the other injustices that I write about in these essays, is maybe the question that we should return to them with is, like, what what do we need to do in this situation to make the condition of joy a possibility for the people who have suffered this harm? What do we, what would it take for, you know, the, the moms who live near the burning nuclear landfill to, to be able to feel joyful and um, not worried about, you know, the health and safety of their children who are, you know, you know, the hair is falling out of their bodies and their chronic nosebleeds and they're being poisoned by the environment. What would it make to make the condition of joy a possibility for the people who are living near the ship channel? What would it take to make the condition of joy a possibility for people who, who whiteness has oppressed, you know, people of color who, who are, are fighting every day for their right to live and survive? What would it take um, for, for us to be able to make the condition of joy a possibility? Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and also just on an individual level. And I don't know that I have answers to those questions because I don't think joy can be prescriptive. Um, I don't think what it takes, but I think that's a question that I want, um, people to take away and, and to ask is sort of what, um, you know, what does joy look like for me? I think one of the miracles of the reckonings is it sort of goes back to the way Casey Lehman described feeling hopeful because of reading this book. I mean, given all of the topics that we covered, 
and that you, we come out the other side with a, a, a sense of poss of po a possible different future. It's, it's really remarkable. And I'm, I'm so glad you came back on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. We were talking today to Lacey M. Johnson about her essay collection, The Reckonings. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Lacey M. Johnson's work at laceymjohnson.com and at houstonfloodmuseum.org. And Lacey has also recorded for the bonus audio archive a reading of her essay, Trigger, first published at Guernica. Trigger joins supplemental material by Marlon James, Laylee Longsoldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Jen Bourbon, Lainey Zumas, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.